Hey friends, Nina here. This week's episode, it's a little different. We are continuing our summer vacation where we explore areas not usually visited on the podcast. Today we're in California for the mysterious disappearance of Bryce Las Pisa. I'm also joined by Whitney and Melissa from Cults, Crimes, and Cabernet. We recorded this episode live on January 3rd, 2021 at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Kansas City, Missouri. And as someone who usually records alone, it was great fun to work with these talented gals. And now, on with the show. So like Lisa said, I'm Whitney. This is Melissa. We are Cults, Crimes, and Cabernet. We do weekly episodes, like she said, very conversational, and we have a wine of the week every week. So this week, we have a Cabernet, true to our brand. And this, you can get two blocks from here. <laughs> um, it is a Christopher Michael uh, Northwest winemakers. It's it's a really good cab, yeah. I think. We we rate, discuss, talk about each of the wines every single week. I have a wine, and then she has a wine. Um, and then we rate them. Yeah, I'm rating it four knives. So it's on a scale of one to five knives. Four knives is what I'm going with. I'm going to do four as well. It's it's nothing outstanding. Like where you like the Cabernet they have here that yes. they'll have at the bar tonight is better than is, this one. Is so better. we yes. recommend it. I don't know the name of it though. Yeah. <laughs> Nina, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking whiskey. Yeah. Okay. That's all right. <laughs> So we're talking about the case of Bryce Les Pisa, who went missing from California, and we're just going to get into the story. Before Bryce went missing, to be honest, I never looked hard at missing people posters, the milk cartons that used to be out there, Karen Les Pisa said, but now you live it, and it's a nightmare no one should have to live. 19-year-old Bryce went missing on August 30th, 2013. And since then, his disappearance is shrouded in a mystery that left family, friends, and law enforcement dumbfounded for almost eight years. Still, those who love him have not given up hope that he's out there somewhere and that someday he will come home. Bryce grew up in suburban Illinois in the city of Naperville, the only child of Michael and Karen. He attended Naperville schools, including Kingsley Elementary, Lincoln Junior High, and Naperville Central High School. He graduated in 2012. Bryce was a striking young man with red hair and bright blue eyes. He had no trouble making friends, and that continued when his family moved to Southern California after he graduated high school. They settled into a city called Laguna Niguel. Laguna Niguel is located south of L.A., roughly halfway between L.A. and San Diego. While in college, Bryce majored in graphic and industrial design at the Sierra College in Rockland. He was a talented artist. Um, Sierra College is located about 465 miles north of where his parents lived in Laguna Niguel. Though young, his art portfolio was already extremely impressive. At the end of the school year, Bryce returned to his parents' home. He spent part of the summer taking an English class at a local college in order to continue earning credits toward his college degree. Bryce was close with his parents and seemed to be happy to be home with them. On August 26, 2013, Bryce went back to school at Sierra College. He reunited with his girlfriend that he had began dating back in his freshman year. Her name was Kim Sly. That afternoon, Bryce had called his mom and let him know, let her know that he enjoyed his speech class and his web design class and he had, that he had attended earlier that day. Karen recalled the conversation as being perfectly normal, something he would do any day of the week, 
call, let her know how he was doing. He was excited about the upcoming semester, and there was nothing that Karen seemed to be worried about. But things looked different from the eyes of those who were around Bryce on a daily basis. They had noticed a change in their friends since he'd come back to campus two weeks earlier. He wasn't acting like himself, and his behavior was becoming more and more erratic. Bryce never really gave his parents trouble. Sure, he drank alcohol, maybe he smoked pot a few times, but he didn't really do anything outside of what his parents considered to be normal teenage behavior. However, after returning to campus, he began to drink large quantities of hard liquor every day. And this wasn't like him, and his friends were understandably confused and concerned. By the time classes started, Bryce was almost unrecognizable. Yeah, this definitely seems like more than just like a college kid letting go or, you know, trying to fit in or anything like that. This seems not only from his family's perspective, but also his friend's perspective. This was not characteristic of what he normally would do. On Tuesday, Bryce became even stranger. His girlfriend, Kim, she knew that he'd been drinking, but this was something more than that. So she asked him what was wrong and he shrugged her off and said everything was fine. But Kim was persistent, to the point where Bryce finally admitted he'd been taking the drug Vyvanse. Vyvanse is a potent stimulant, for those that don't know. It's similar to Adderall for those who have ADHD, and it just kind of helps you focus. It's popular on college campuses because the user will stay up all night to help them stay focused, help study, do you know schoolwork. The idea of Bryce taking the Vyvanse concerned Kim, and she just didn't care for it, and it was, became a big situation within their relationship. He grew frustrated with her and ultimately broke up with her via text message, saying that she would be better off without him anyway and just ultimately ending the relationship. So, in, and my thoughts are like, does law enforcement, after he goes missing, do they speak with the professors? Do they find out, like, okay, is he behind on his schoolwork? Is there big projects coming up? Because for a college kid, like, that's your whole life, and if you're, you know... You're taking Adderall to stay up at night. Obviously, you you think you need more time in the day. So it would be I would be interested to know if they ever looked into that. About 11 p.m., Bryce went over to Kim's apartment in Chico, and no one is sure why he went to her apartment. He hadn't changed his mind about the breakup, and he still would not give a clear answer as to why he was breaking up with her in the first place. Regardless of their relationship standing, Kim still cared about him, and she was worried about him leaving. She took away his car keys and begged him to get some sleep before he drove home. Bryce refused and demanded his keys back. When Kim would not return them, Bryce called his mother. He complained to his mother that Kim wouldn't give him his keys, and he asked her to speak to Kim to convince her to return the keys. So Kim spoke to Karen over the phone and returned the keys. This was about 1130 at night. The next morning, Michael and Karen, Bryce's parents, got an automated message from their insurance confirming that a roadside assistance request had been placed on one of their vehicles. They tried to call Bryce to see if he had car trouble driving back from Kim's, and they couldn't reach him. They called the dorms where Bryce lived, and his roommate said he did not come home the night before. Bryce was not answering his cell phone, and so Michael and Karen did what all parents do, and they started searching online to try to figure out where he could possibly be or what auto shop may have come to Bryce's aid in the situation of his insurance calling. They learned that he had called around 9 a.m. from a small town of Buttonwillow, which is located more than 350 miles south of Kim's apartment. So clearly, 
Bryce drove all night nonstop. Yeah, so his parents are constantly calling him. Um, they all go unanswered. The phone was either turned off or he was maybe purposely ignoring his parents' calls because I mean, maybe he didn't want to discuss whatever's going on at that time. Um, something is clearly going on with him. Uh, the relationship between Bryce and his parents seemed to be very honest and open. I mean, he's a kid that would call like once or twice a week to his parents, so it seemed like they had a good open communication relationship. Um, but it, to me, at least, it feels as like whatever he was going home for, like he needed to talk to his parents about something, um, and he was essentially just waiting till he arrived home to speak to them. Um, Michael, his father, um, when they couldn't get a hold of him, they called the um, the, rare, the repair shop again, and there is a guy named Christian that I don't know if he owned it or just worked there, but he is an amazing employee, and he actually went, he was the one that went out to Bryce's car. So he was able to give more information. So Karen, Bryce's mom, gets on the phone with Christian, and Christian tells her that Bryce stopped at the Button Willow rest area because he ran out of gas. So Christian drove three gallons of gas out to him about 9.30 that morning. When Karen told Christian that she was unable to get in touch with Bryce, Christian offered to drive back out to the rest area and see if Bryce was still there. But Christian didn't think Bryce would actually be there because it had been almost three hours. Um, He assumed that Bryce would be well on his way back home. So talk about excellent customer service with this auto repair shop. Not only did they go out and take the gas, but he went out to check again more than once. So I would call that more than accommodating. Yeah. So Christian was surprised to see Bryce sitting in the exact same spot he'd been in that morning, and Bryce was surprised to see Christian. Christian surprised Bryce even more when he handed over his phone and said, your mother wants to talk to you. (laughs) So Karen felt a lot better after she heard her son's voice, but she was still worried. She asked Bryce what he was doing, and he could not give her a straight answer. But he sounded clear. There was nothing to indicate to Karen that he was intoxicated or under the influence. And by this point, Bryce was only about three hours from home. So she decided she would hold off on having a tough conversation with him. She just needed him to fill up his tank, get back on Interstate 5, and he'd be back home by 3 o'clock. Bryce agreed with his mom and said that he would do that. I really wish I knew more about the conversation between Christian and Bryce, though, because surely he said something along the lines of, what's going on, dude? Why are you still here? It's been three hours. I got you gas. Move on. What's what's going on? But we don't know what happened in that conversation. So the afternoon passes and it's 3.30 and Bryce is still not home. So Michael and Karen, they try his cell phone, but again, he's not answering. So they tell themselves, well, maybe he's stuck in traffic. But as more time ticks by, they were still worried, so they called the police and reported him missing. The first thing that police did was try to ping Bryce's cell phone to pin down his location, and they were able to find him very easily. Almost 10 hours after calling roadside assistance because he was out of gas, Bryce was still parked in Buttonwillow. So I think it's definitely crazy that police were willing to ping his his cell phone like right away like as soon as the parents called and I mean typically I know we all listen to these true crime it it never happens that way no one gets a ping of the cell phone for days um so it it's amazing that they were willing especially for a 19 20 year old to go out right away and um kind of try to start figuring out where Bryce is at so two deputies are dispatched to Bryce's location 
Bryce had filled up his gas tank, but rather than get on the freeway, he was just parked sitting there. He was polite and cooperative with the deputies. When they asked why he wasn't on his way home, he said that he was just trying to blow off steam before he left. The deputies accepted the explanation, but still wanted to make sure that he was okay to drive. They got Bryce out of the car and conducted a field sobriety test. And Bryce passed with flying colors. Bryce told the deputies they were welcome to search his car, which they did, and they found no drugs, no alcohol, and no weapons. This boggles me, because why would you just up and offer, like, hey, just come check out my car, no big deal. It just seems a little bit strange, even with the field sobriety test, that he threw that out there. Because he was not a minor and he had not committed any crime, the police had no reason to detain him. They wouldn't let him go until he agreed to talk to his mother, and he seemed reluctant to talk to her, despite the officers relaying to him that Karen was extremely worried. Finally, one of the officers took Bryce's phone and called his mother. He did speak to her, the deputy did, and he told her that Bryce passed the field sobriety test and they felt it was safe for him to drive, which made Karen feel better. As a mother, that would make me feel better. Um, But she still felt like she needed to talk to him, so the officer handed the phone to Bryce, and Karen said, look, you need to get something to eat and get on the road, and Bryce agreed. Excuse me. After he hung up, the deputies left feeling confident that he would finally be on his way. So I I definitely think that these officers did everything in their power to make sure that Bryce was okay. I mean, he was 19. They filled sobriety test, checking his car to make sure that they weren't missing anything. I mean, I definitely think they they did their part on making sure everything was okay. And Bryce said that he told the deputies, look, I'll get, I'll get on the road, I'll get going, but that's not what he did. When Christian, the auto mechanic who gave Bryce gas earlier in the day, drove by, he saw that Bryce was still in the same spot on the side of the road. So Christian called Karen and told her that Bryce still had not left. He also told her that he would follow Bryce to the interstate to make sure that he got on it. So Bryce knew that he could not dawdle any longer. He drove to a local gas station to get a soda, and on his way out, he told Christian that he would start driving home. At last, after more than 13 hours of sitting by himself in Buttonwillow, Bryce hopped on Interstate 5 to head home. Now, Christian followed him for about 10 miles, and he would later say that he didn't notice anything strange about his driving. Christian made one last call to Karen to let her know that Bryce was heading south on Interstate 5 toward Laguna Niguel. Now, what is very strange to me is at this point, Bryce has been sitting in one location for more than 13 hours. Three hours from his parents. Not answering his phone some of those times. Why didn't his parents go to him? As a parent, I would have gotten a car and go to them. Now, I'm not in Karen's situation. I will not put her down for her choices because I'm sure she beats herself up every single day over it. So I just wanted to point it out there. It just seems kind of strange that she didn't say, stay there, your dad and I are on our way. Around 1.50 a.m., Bryce called Karen to let her know that he drove off the interstate for a while. He wasn't exactly sure where he was, but he said he'd be home at 3.25. Bryce called again at 2.09 a.m. to say he was too tired to drive anymore, so he was pulling off the road to find a spot to take a nap. And this would be the last time anyone heard from Bryce Lispisa. Um, the fact that he is keeping his mom in the loop about his whereabouts and things like that, to me, proves that he's, like, coherent enough to know, like, to be taking responsibility, letting his mom know. Um, 
Otherwise, if he really thought about, like, just disappearing, he wouldn't be keeping his mom in the loop, in my mind, at all. Like, he would just cut off ties and then be done with it, not be, give her these updates. At 8 a.m., the doorbell rang at the Las Pisa residence, and Michael and Karen were relieved because they thought, hey, Bryce is finally home. Instead, their relief turned to horror when they opened the door to a California Highway Patrol officer. Bryce's car had been found at the bottom of a 25-foot embankment on a paved access road leading to Castiac Lake, the main boat ramp. The car was wrecked and abandoned. All of Bryce's stuff, including his phone and laptop, were still in the car, but there was no sign of Bryce. Once again, they had to report their son missing. Now, Castiac is located just off Interstate 5, about 90 miles north of his parents' home. Cars on the interstate can exit onto Lake Hughes Road, which leads up a hill to the Castiac Lake Recreation Area. A surveillance camera will take a photograph of every car's license plate as it goes by. At 2.15 a.m., Bryce drove past this camera. Now, if you remember, this is just a few minutes after he called his mom and said he was too tired to drive. But Bryce drove by this camera again at 4.29 a.m. There are no other cameras, so we don't know how long he remained at the top of the hill, what he was doing, or why he went up a second time. So really, him going up once, them catching it on surveillance, and then sometime later, he's going back up. So in my mind, like, he's second-guessing whatever he's about to do, or and he hasn't made that clear decision yet, and he goes up there to check it out and then comes back. I'm wondering what his purpose was for going down this road off the main route anyway. Was he looking for a place to crash for a couple of hours because he had been awake for so long? Um, I know he had told Christian and the police that he was blowing off steam, but it's been hours at this point. Like, surely he had calmed down or enough to take a nap at least and then returned to driving. Did he have a history of anger and these outbursts and the stress? What, what was going on in his mind that he felt he needed to get off the main route to go up this hill? I really am almost thinking that he was working up the nerve to tell his parents something. And like the whole time he's just like, okay, I got to do this. I got to do this. And he keeps going. And then he's like, as soon as he gets there, he's going to have to explain to his parents what the heck is going on with him. Yeah. So remember, he went up the hill for a second time at 4.30, and we can't say when the accident occurred, but it was discovered less than an hour after Bryce went up the hill that second time. Police were on the scene just before 5.30 a.m. There were no witnesses to the crash. After analyzing the scene, the conclusion drawn was a shocking one. Bryce's accident was, in fact, not an accident. He had driven up the hill on Lake Hughes Road, then entered an access area for a cell phone tower. Tire tracks led investigators past the tower, located at the top of a steep embankment, then down the embankment itself. Bryce was in complete control of the car as it sped toward the ravine, and his foot was on the accelerator the entire way down. It continued to accelerate until it crashed into the access road below. I know his parents didn't believe that Bryce had been depressed or suicidal, but these actions kind of speak that he may have had some mental instabilities at the time and he was really struggling with something. So his car was found laying on its side, looking a little worse for wear, obviously, but mostly intact. The rear window had been smashed from the inside, presumably by Bryce in order to free himself from the wreckage. His duffel bag, which contained clothes and his wallet, was found on the ground not far from the broken window. 
The bag was unzipped and looked as if someone had rummaged through it. Investigators assumed that someone was Bryce. Though it was a violent crash, investigators also assumed that he was dazed but not seriously injured. They did find a little bit of blood in the front seat, but none near the broken window or on the road outside the car. There were no drag marks to indicate that Bryce had been seriously injured or that he was unable to walk. Now they needed to figure out where he went. So police immediately launched a massive search of the area. They had dozens of deputies searching, helicopters doing aerial searches. And this was not an easy area to search. The recreation area covers nearly seven square miles, and the terrain was rugged. The Santa Clarita Valley Search and Rescue Team joined the search on Saturday. They spent 10 hours searching but found no trace of Bryce. This is just crazy because there wasn't much time between that surveillance footage of him going up the mountain. It's, it's an hour. Like, so he got up the nerve, crashed the car, and got away or walked away from the scene all within one hour that the police were there, which just, that's not a lot of time to get away and to cover your tracks completely if that's what he was doing. Yes, but he's injured, he's on foot. yes. Through terrain that he probably doesn't even know about. I mean, it still is a little bit of a distance from his parents. Yeah. So. So his parents did their part in trying to find their son. They got on social media to spread the word that he was missing, and the online community immediately lent their support. A network of volunteers printed out and distributed missing persons posters. A team of search dogs came in from out of state. His girlfriend or ex-girlfriend, Kim, drove down to the search area with a pair of Bryce's sneakers and socks so the dogs would have Bryce's scent. After some of the dogs tracked the scent to Government Cove, divers were sent into that area, but they didn't find anything. With the timeline being so tight and them able to get dogs out there so quickly, I'm really surprised the dogs didn't find more or were able to find at least one tangible item, a piece of clothing, a shoelace any literally anything that he may have touched i felt that i was surprised the dogs didn't find more so early in the search and this is this is wild early in the search the burning body of a man was found near castiac lake the body was found around 6 a.m off lake hughes road about four miles from i-5 a passing cyclist phoned it into the fire department bomb technicians are deployed to clear the area and an arson investigation was initiated The body was found face down and appeared to have been wearing shoes. At first, investigators were unsure if the body was Bryce or connected to Bryce's disappearance somehow. The L.A. County Coroner's Office was notified of the body before 8 a.m., and coroner's investigators arrived at 125 to take the body back to the coroner's office. They performed an autopsy that week, but no information was gleaned about the man's identity. They did know that it wasn't Bryce. A security hold was put on information concerning the investigation because police did not want to taint their investigation by releasing too much. And this is absolutely crazy. Like, how many bodies are out in this area? And what are the chances of someone going missing and a burning body being found within 24 hours? Like, it's gutsy for whoever (laughs) left that body there actively on fire. That's crazy. So in the investigation, detectives interviewed Bryce's friends and family. They considered the possibility that Bryce may have been suicidal, especially since the investigation pointed toward Bryce having purposely and intentionally driven his car down the embankment. His parents were adamant that Bryce would never take his own life. But his friends at college, they weren't so sure. 
Sean and Kim, the two who knew Bryce the best, expressed deep concerns about Bryce's behavior before he went missing. They told detectives about his increased drinking and drug use. They even talked about how his personality seemed to change overnight when he began combining Vivance with alcohol. Sean spoke about the biggest red flag. He told detectives that Bryce began giving away some of his possessions. Bryce had given Sean his Xbox, some of his games, and a pair of diamond earrings that were a gift from his mother. Sean tried to refuse, but Bryce insisted. Detectives knew that a precursor to someone committing suicide or running away to start their life over is to give away their possessions. And honestly, I think at this point in Bryce's life, I feel like his friends would know more about him, um, what's going on with him, his usual behaviors, more than his parents. He's not living with his parents at this point. I know he was with them over the summer. Um, But kids definitely, especially at this age, act different around their friends. They might come out of their shell and act, you know. So the fact that he was giving away his stuff when I read that, I was like, that is very strange. And if Bryce was suicidal, having walked away from the crash and all of these possessions and this crash that was supposed to kill him, did he walk into the lake and drown? Diver spent days but never found a body or any evidence to justify that theory. And what if he wasn't suicidal? What if he just wanted to get away, maybe to start a new life? His parents insisted that Bryce loved them and loved his life, that he would never just up and leave. But there's evidence to back up this theory. When bloodhounds were brought to the area to see if they could find his scent, they followed it from the crash site down to a dam on the lake, then down to the roadway on top of the dam. Once they crossed over the dam, the dogs went south to a spillway before ending up at a truck stop. Investigators theorized that Bryce walked to the truck stop after his crash, hitched a ride, and started a new life. It was possible that he didn't even remember his old life, but his parents couldn't stand that theory. They said there was no logical reason for their son to do that. I, I don't know the actual statistics on this, but I think it's pretty low that he like he has such a concussion from this accident. He completely forgets his own life, but he's able to go to a truck stop and not raise any suspicion. I mean, because you, you wouldn't know that you forgot, so you would be asking for help, and and no one really would be like... He would. Someone would be calling nine one one or the, the authorities. Definitely, um, yeah. But are there like tons of people out there that are like, oh no, I'm done. I just want to start over. Like I'm just going to forget this whole past life. Like, are there just hundreds of millions of people out there that want to do that? No, don't think so. It takes lots of money, lots, lots of, of time, money. lots of planning to just start over. Yes. And he didn't even take his clothes. Like, don't isn't bare basics. Come on, we need socks and underwear. Come on, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So after two weeks of searching, they scaled the searches back. With his red hair, bright blue eyes, and large bull tattoo with Roman numerals on his shoulder, Bryce would stand out. There were numerous calls of sightings, but none of them turned out to be Bryce. It's been eight years since he went missing, and there have been no confirmed sightings of him, but also no body found. So where is Bryce? Did he run off and start a new life, or is his body lost somewhere in the California wilderness? His information has been entered into the National Missing Persons Database, that's NamUs, and his fingerprints, dental records, and DNA are all on file. His parents will never stop searching for answers. They want to know what happened to their only child. (laughs) This week's episode was written by Brittany Martinez with audio support from Cesare Gray. 
You can find Cults, Crimes, and Cabernet at cultscrimescabernet.com or on your favorite podcatcher. Already Gone will return on August 1st with a traditional episode from the Great Lakes region. Also, you can find additional content on Patreon. For just a few dollars a month, you get a bonus episode and early ad-free access to all episodes. That's patreon.com slash already gone. I'm Nina Instead. I appreciate you listening and please be safe.